It's Friday the 10th of December, it's 7.31 in the morning and I'm currently trying to figure out how to best organise my thoughts to put down onto this recording. Um, I've thought about writing something like this for a while, but it's always been the kind of order to put it in. And it's an important story to tell, so I want to get it right. Um, I want to make sure that the story I tell makes sense and that it connects with people, because that's why I'm doing this. I'm doing this in the hope that my story connects with other people, or maybe even just one person, and it helps them forward out of their mental health journey. I have suffered with mental illness, and that's why I'm doing this. I'm not doing it for sympathy, I'm not doing it for people to feel sorry for me, I'm not even doing it for fame and fortune, I'm doing it in the hope that by sharing my experience and sharing my story, that it connects with at least one person and they can help themselves, or get the help they need to be able to get out of the hole that they're feeling that they're in at the moment. Now, I was in the military, but this isn't going to be one of the typical military mental health stories. This isn't going to be a story of combat stress. This isn't going to be a story of somebody who's been to war and seen horrific things. I've never been to war. I've never seen combat. I have never fired my weapon in anger at any other individual. This is a story of a person who felt lonely, felt isolated and alone, and suffered severely with failure. Failure was my kryptonite. Failure was the thing that broke me. And I've learned now to deal with that failure. So hopefully, this will help people learn to deal with theirs if they're feeling the same. This isn't going to be a thing filled with inspirational quotes either. I'm not one of these lifestyle gurus. I'm not going to give you a five-step plan. I'm not going to flog you anything. I'm not going to sell you anything. There's no pills. There's no magic cure or fix. I'm literally just sharing my story. I'm putting it down onto this recording in a hope that it connects with somebody. And also, it's going to be cathartic for me to get it out there in full. What happened to me? Why it happened to me? Because every time I tell the story... Something new connects with me as to why potentially I was triggered in that way and went down that hole. So hopefully it will help you too. My name is Dan Herrick. I am a 33-year-old military member serving in the British Army and I'm fine. So I've decided to call it I'm fine because that's the two words that I use the most during my mental health struggle. And I think it's two words that connect with everybody, really. We've all used those two words in some time when we're not feeling fine, when we're not feeling okay, just to kind of cover up and avoid the question, if you like. So I used it increasingly over the six years that I struggled. So this podcast, if you like, is going to be over four episodes originally. Uh, We're going to do the first episode now, which is the prologue, the build-up to my life, if you like, Um, me pre-joining the Air Force at the age of 21, and my childhood and the things I did growing up and and all all those sorts of things. And then in episode two, we will look at my Air Force career and the highs I experienced during my Air Force career and where I was really at the top of my game growing up. 
And then episode three will be the darkest episode for sure. It'll be the one that will be the most difficult to record and maybe the most difficult to listen to. And that will be my six-year journey through my mental health struggles. And then episode four will be where I'm at today and how I've come out of them and, and, and how I'm pushing forward. And then I want to revisit this in a few months' time and potentially do a fifth episode answering your questions or your comments if people have listened to this. But we'll see how these first four go. So today we're going to start, like I said, with the prologue and me growing up. Before I jump into this, I just want to say that if you are struggling with your mental health and you are looking to reach out to somebody, please call the Samaritans on 116123 or you can text the word SHOUT to MIND on 85258. Please reach out to somebody and if you're not feeling like talking to anybody like that, reach out to a friend, a colleague, even drop me a message on my Instagram underscore Daniel Herrick underscore and we will try and get you the help that you need please please reach out so let's go back to where it all began then um 1988 was the year I was born I was born in Lincoln in Lincoln Hospital and uh, my parents always told this story Uh, they always say that out of the window of their hospital room they could see Lincoln prison which is if you know Lincoln at all is literally opposite Lincoln Hospital And they said, as I was born, because I was born early in the morning, the sun was rising over Lincoln Prison. And uh, they said that that was potentially an omen for me as as I grew up, that I was potentially going to be trouble. And though, although I've never ended up in any sort of establishment like Lincoln Prison, touch wood, uh, I hope never to either, um, I can't say that they were completely wrong. Uh, I have been kind of troublesome. I'm the middle of three boys so I do suffer with the middle child syndrome Uh, my older brother was born 18 months before me and my younger brother was seven years after me so there's a bit of a gap and growing up I of course like all boys do I fought with them both um more so with my younger brother and I think vying for attention more than anything else but yeah we fought we fought quite hard um but I had a great childhood growing up I had two very loving parents my father was in the air force uh his father before him was as well uh, and his granddad was also in the Air Force. My uncle was in the military, he's in the Air Force. My cousin, uh, my auntie was even in the military. So I came from a military background. And I was brought up as such, although my dad had left the military by the time I was born, he was medically discharged, unfortunately. Um, I still had that military kind of upbringing. I was very strict, uh, but fair, firm but fair, I would call it. Um, we lived in Derby. After I was born in Lincoln, we moved to Derby. Uh, and that was where most of my young childhood was. Um, I don't really remember much about uh, my initial upbringing up to sort of early primary school years. But in two, in 1995-96, we moved to a village called Hilton in Derbyshire. And I had the best time there. We moved into a housing estate that was just being built. It was in the throes of... of of going up and uh, our house was right on the edge of the estate and to the left was all the estate that had already been built and there was they were building other houses so we lived on a building site for the first few years and to the right of that there was a big long fence line with that sort of crisscrossing wire fence and on the other side of that was just sheep and it was lovely bit of uh, land to the right of us so we'd go down and we'd, we'd you know, you'd have the, 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 the big field there to look out on. But also, as boys, we would go out and we just loved the fact that there was a building site out in front of us. So we'd go out the front and we'd pretend to be 
building our own houses and we pretend to have diggers and all that sort of thing and we'd go and play football in the street and we'd use bricks that had just been laid uh, left laying around we'd use them as goalposts and we had it all. it was it was great growing up in that area the spice girls were huge then we were massive into the spice girls um and i remember our house was a lovely house it was really nicely laid out you you'd go in through the front door um the kitchen and everything was in the back you had a dining room to the left the living room was out the back and it had some sort of french doors and patio patio doors that would open out into a, a garden that kind of went uphill it's only a small little garden but it was big enough for us to play football in sometimes and play swing ball until our parents got rid of the grass and turned it all into gravel when we got a dog and then my room was upstairs and i had kind of like a room that was just round to the right and looked out over the, the front of the house um, and we all had our own rooms so my little brother had his room at the back and my older brother he had the biggest room of the three of us and his room was out the back of the house as well uh, and we were lucky enough to have tvs in our room and you know eventually we had computers in our room and things like that we had gaming consoles i remember i remember the day we got a uh a super nintendo amazing day it was and we'd sit and we'd play things like um Pilot Wings was a, was a big game that we used to play on that. Um, my dad, obviously being in the Air Force, he'd sit down with us, and that was quite a big deal that our dad would sit down and play video games with us. Uh, and he'd, he'd kind of do the pilot stuff. And my mum was massively into um, Star Wings. She absolutely loved Star Wings. She was really good at it. Um, so she'd help us play that, and then we'd have Mario as well, and we'd take it in turns. And Before the game, the, 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 the era of internet gaming and all that sort of thing, you'd sit round... Um, together and you'd kind of I'd kind of watch my, my older brother play and then he'd watch me play and we'd kind of take it in turns and we'd we'd, we'd push each other on we would say to, we'd encourage each other to kind of go a little bit further and uh, and complete the game because you know we we knew we couldn't do it on our own we weren't we weren't savvy enough to do it on our own so we would we would push each other to try and to try and complete these games and we also had games like FIFA uh, international superstar soccer we had and so we played competitively against each other as well and there was a few fights there and there was a few tantrums and things with that but all in all it was great fun to sit around and do that sort of stuff and the summers back then i don't know why you, you always wax nostalgic about summers back when you were a kid but the summers back then seemed to be a lot warmer seemed to be a lot more sunshine back then so you're always outside whether we were playing football outside or you know just building dens somewhere in in, in the woods or trees or just causing mischief. Um, we were always out and about. Um, so we, I can't complain about my childhood. My childhood was great. Where it did kind of differ, I guess, from, from the sort of perfect childhood is the fact that, uh, and no childhood is perfect, but the fact that I was kind of different to the rest of my family. I was always kind of the black sheep, or felt that way anyway, in that um, my older brother and my younger brother were very much like my dad, and my dad is, um, like I said before, very firm but very fair. Uh, and he was a disciplinarian. He'd come from a military background and um, very good with kind of business and money and all that sort of thing, very sensible. And uh, that's how my other brothers were. And I was the complete opposite of that. I was very wild, very... Um, disobedient if you like I, I i loved going against what i was told if someone told me to do something i was like no nah, i'm not doing that i'm gonna i'm gonna do something else um 
My friends were very different to my brother's friends. My brother's friends were all very sensible, very smart, very intelligent. Mine were all very rebellious. Um, a lot of them smoked. Um, so I, it was, it was always, I was always at odds with, with that kind of thing growing up. Um, but not to the point where it, it caused a strain. I did the thing that every kid does, where you kind of threaten to run away from home. Every kid's always packed a bag um, with a yoghurt in and a banana maybe and your favourite toy and threaten to leave home. I did that on several occasions and my parents just went, okay, then off you go. And I never made it more than three or four steps outside the door and then I turned around and came back in. Um, That's the kind of child I was. Um, And I think one story kind of sums up the differences quite well in the fact that we were out cycling one day on our bikes. There's a big group. Me and my older brother were there. And um, there was about 15 of us, all told, in this group. And we were cycling around the estate, and I came across this rabbit, and the rabbit was dead. The rabbit was caught in a railing, uh, and it had died. But me being me, um, I thought, oh, I'll grab this rabbit, and I'll take it back to my parents, and maybe they can save it. Um, my brother, older brother at the time, the, the sensible head, went, it's dead, leave it alone. Um, but because I had other kids there riling me up, going, no, 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 you can do it, Take let's save the rabbit. I thought, I can save the rabbit. So I grabbed the rabbit, cycled back to my house, presented it to my mum, who said, what the hell are you doing with that rabbit? It's dead, it's dirty, put it down. Um, so yeah, there's that's the kind of difference, I would say. My brother was very sensible. And I was not very sensible. But as kids, um, like I said, we had a, we had a great time in uh, childhood. We had holidays every year. I was very lucky in that my dad, although he struggled when he first left the military, when he was medically discharged, he lost a few jobs just due to the fact that he was in the aviation, aviation industry. And it's a very volatile industry. Um, he found a job at Rolls-Royce and was very successful there. So... Um, we would go on a holiday every year. And we would go on a holiday abroad every year. We'd always go to Germany, France, Italy, all those kind of areas. And we'd always kind of aim for the Alps. Uh, and my dad never flew anywhere. We never flew anywhere, really, um, when we were kids because my dad had bad knees. So he didn't like flying. He found it very uncomfortable. And also, he liked the fact that if he took his car, we could drive and, and, and experience different things and, and, and adventure and, and go around and see different things. We weren't a kind of family that went to on a holiday and sat on a beach for two weeks. We never did that. We'd maybe have one or two days relaxing like that, but the majority of the time we were out and about seeing different things. Um, and I love that. I love the fact that we were always out adventuring, exploring a culture, seeing different aspects of the place we were there. We were never sort of in one place. Uh, and there were a couple of holidays that I that really stick out to me that I absolutely loved. And one that's will always stay with me, and I think it's the family holiday that we will always remember, is we went to a place called Baia Domizia, which is in southern Italy, just south of Naples. And we get up in the morning, about four o'clock in the morning, and that was every holiday, because uh, we were driving. And we drive down to Calais. We got on the, I think it was the ferry. I can't remember if we used the ferry or the Euroton. We always used to use either or, but I think on this time we used the ferry. And we got on the ferry, went the ferry across to Calais, got off at Calais, and then we had about a six-hour wait in Calais because we were getting a train from Calais down to Rome. And it was an overnight train that you could drive your car onto. Um, and we got on this train and we we rode down to Rome. And the train journey was 
magnificent. It was like something out of Harry Potter where you kind of in an old classic uh, train carriage. There was bunk beds on either side. And um, <clears throat> there was enough room for all five of us to sleep in this in this cabin. Uh, and as we would, you know, the clickety-clackety, clickety-clackety, the train was going through, you could kind of see in the distance, we saw the Eiffel Tower from Paris in the distance. And just as night was falling, you were starting to enter the Alps and you could see all the mountain regions and the lights in the mountains and things like that. And it was beautiful, this train ride, all the way through France and into Italy. And then we arrived in Rome and we had a little bit of a wait in Rome while the car came off the train and then we drove from Rome down to, to Baidemizia. And we had the fun of driving through Rome, which if anyone's ever driven in Rome, they'll know it's absolutely chaotic. It is a absolute minefield driving through Rome. The, the Italians don't care about any kind of road safety. They just drive. Um, so we had to deal with that. And that was great fun to us. Then we got down to Baidemitzi, and Baidemitzi is on the coast. Beautiful place. It was, a, uh, it was a Euro camp holiday, so you stayed in one of these big sort of static caravans. And... Um, we spent the whole two weeks just exploring the area. We went to Naples, we went to Pompeii. The hottest place I've ever been on earth was Pompeii. Uh, I remember walking around there and, and just in awe of all the things that were around there, like the sort of mini coliseums and the amphitheatres and all the, the roads that had been uh, exposed and the fact that they were still there digging things up and exposing new things and the bodies that had been entombed from the explosion of Vesuvius. Um, fascinated me, all that history, I love history and that sort of thing, so that really fascinated me. And the other great part of the holiday, which kind of wasn't really planned, was the fact that at the time, it was 1998, and it was the 1998 World Cup in France, and we got there just towards the end of the group stages, and every evening we'd go into the restaurant in, in, on the hotel camp, on the hotel camp, on the camp, and we go in and eat in the restaurant. And my little brother was only about two or three at the time. And he would walk around with a little notepad and he'd pretend to be a waiter. And the waitresses and waiters loved him because he pretended he'd go and take people's orders and things like that. So he was wandering off. And uh, But after our meal, we would then go and sit in the bar. And the bar was kind of like an outdoor area. They'd put all these seating up in front of this television. They'd put all these kind of uh, chairs out. And we'd, there was an ice cream parlour to the right if I remember rightly, so this is ice cream part of this. We'd go and get an ice cream and we'd sit and like Dad would have a beer, Mum would have a, a glass of I think gin or something like that. And we'd sit in front of the TV and we'd watch the World Cup. And the great thing about it was there was people from all over Europe who were there. There were Polish people there, there were Germans there, the French were there, the Italians, the British, the Scottish loads of different nationalities were there and we'd watch every game every night and it was fantastic to see all the different nationalities cheering on their teams and things really really entertaining and I remember the one game that kind of solidified it for me was England-Argentina um, I missed the Michael Owen goal the, the the famous Michael Owen run and goal I missed that because I went off the toilet I came back and we were just 1-0 up I was like what's happened there uh, Michael Owen had scored that magnificent goal. So I'll, I I never saw that live, but still, fantastic goal. And then obviously the game went on and, it, you know, Argentina equalised and David Beckham got sent off and there was the highs and lows of the whole thing. And then we got knocked out on penalties. And I remember walking out and the Scottish family were there and they were like, we're England are going home. And at the time I was upset, but... I really enjoyed it. I really, really enjoyed it. And then we, we came back and we went home and 
remember reading on the in a newspaper uh, on the ferry that David uh, Dennis Bergkamp had scored an absolutely magnificent goal for for Holland against Argentina and knocked them out. So that, you know, I was happy that Argentina had got knocked out. Um, and then we watched the final when we got home, and that was great a great summer. And that was very typical of our holidays. We'd always drive somewhere, we'd always explore, but and it was always kind of like in the Alps kind of area. So I've always grown up with a, a keen fondness of hiking and walking and the mountains and climbing and exploring and, and being outdoors and, and seeing new things and learning about historical things and, and all that good stuff. And that's embedded in me from those family holidays. And it's still something I do today. I'm, I'm not one who can go on a holiday and sit on a beach for two weeks. That would drive me insane. Um, I need to be going exploring and seeing different things and exploring and, and, and indulging myself in other cultures. So that's something I've, I've definitely grown up with. But on the flip side of that, there was another time in, in a summer holiday where um, we were staying at home with uh, my mum and there was the three boys again and we were in, still in Hilton. And it was a time when, when, you were, when you used to get cereal packets when we were kids, you used to get toys in them and sometimes you'd get free versions of video games. They used to do it on, on magazines as well. You used to get free demos of games for like PlayStation and, 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 and Xbox and things like that or computers and on this particular cereal box we got a free copy of the toy story 2 video game that had just come out and it was just a demo very short um demo of this, of this game but the, that summer was particularly wet it was a very wet summer so we couldn't get outside so rather than kind of um sitting there doing nothing or sitting there separately we'd all gather around the computer in my brother's room and we would play this toy story 2 demo and we would take it in terms, my mum would have a go, then I would have a go. My younger brother, again, who was only three or four, he'd have a go, and then my, my older brother would have a go. And it was great. It was fantastic. Like, again, we would all encourage each other to go further and, and try and find the little secrets that were involved in there. And all, all the, although the game was probably no more than half an hour's or an hour's worth of gameplay, if that, um, we had a great time doing it. We really did have a great time playing it. And... It's those small things, those memories that I cling on to most uh, in my childhood. And they're the kind of things that I take forward now and as a parent myself now is you realise that um, it's not so much, yes, obviously it costs money to go on those holidays, it costs a lot of money to go on those holidays, but it's not the financial side of it. It's not having, I don't remember any great toys, I remember those memories. And that's something that I, as a parent now I try and instil with, with my son is that, it's I could spend all the money in the world, but he's not going to remember that. What he'll remember is those small memories and those key memories where we spent time together and we had a great time. So that's kind of where I want to be at with a parent. So although I didn't get on with my parents all the time, they've left me with some fantastic memories and and I can't thank them enough for raising me the way they have done and all that they've done for me. Um. And like I said, I didn't get on with my dad all the time. Me and my dad used to butt heads quite frequently. Um, we never really saw eye to eye growing up. Even into my teenage and early 20 years, we didn't, we didn't really see eye to eye. And we would butt heads quite, quite a lot, sometimes physically. Um, but he, again, he was always firm but fair. Uh, and I think really <clears throat> that was kind of where my fear of failure came from. Um, it's something we're going to touch on more in the later episodes. But as a kid, I idolised praise from my from my parents. When I got praise, um, I loved that. 
I loved the fact that they were geeing me up and encouraging me. I was a very keen footballer. I did very, very well and got into the Derby County Academy. Um, I was very successful in that. And uh, my dad would be there every week taking me to football training. And he would push me forward and he would give me shit if I didn't perform in 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 the academy on those training days. He would he would really rip rip into me. Um because that was his style. His style was when I did well, he praised me to the hill. I remember one time because we'd always go to the football training on on I think it was on a Wednesday night. We'd go football training in Derby. It was about a forty five minute drive to get there. So it wasn't just around the corner. It was a long old way to get there. And he'd stand there after a full day's work, he would stand there and he would watch me play football. Uh, come rain or shine, he was there. And um, I remember one particular day, I was I played really, really well. I was doing everything right. I was doing little back flicks and passing the ball, and the coaches were praising me, and he, and he got me back in the car, and he said, you were brilliant tonight. He says, you were absolutely brilliant. And um, that... Even now, it gets me emotional of of how good I felt when he said that to me. He said, you were brilliant tonight. And after every training session, we'd always stop off in um, the local fish and chip shop. We'd get fish and chips for the family and we'd have our tea together. And he got in, <clears throat> excuse me, he got in and we sat around the table with the fish and chips. And he was saying to my mum and to my brothers, he said, he was brilliant tonight. He was doing this and he was explaining everything. He was doing little flicks. He was passing the ball. He was listening to the coaches and he was doing everything the coaches were saying. He said he was the only person out there who was moving. He was finding space. He was brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant. And I was so happy to hear him say that. So, so happy. Because there were so many times where I'd, I'd get in the car and he goes, you were fucking terrible tonight. Or you didn't do this. You're not listening to this. You're not doing this. You're not picking it up. And I, all I wanted him for him to do was to, to praise me. And when he did like that, it, it felt really good. And there was, there was only other one, <clears throat> there was multiple times where he praised me, but there was one other time where it really stuck out to me. And it was, um, I think it was just after I joined the Air Force. I'd taken some photographs and um, my grandfather, his, my dad's dad, was also a photographer in the Air Force. It was, must have been just before, actually. I think it was just before I joined the Air Force. And I'd taken some pictures, uh, and I'd taken them up to show him, to kind of get his professional opinion on them. Uh, and my granddad kind of tore them to shreds. Um, he didn't like them at all. Uh, and he, he didn't kind of praise any of them, anything like that. And my dad stood there and went, you're wrong. You're wrong. He said, these photographs are brilliant. He's worked really hard on these. He's done a really good job. He says, you're wrong. He says, how dare you say that about my son's photography? He says, it's my photography. His photography is brilliant. He says, absolutely brilliant. He says, and you're wrong. Um, and yeah, they're the two times, that the time playing football and that time there where he stood up for me. They're the two times that really stick out to me. And, and, and the feeling you get, and, and a lot of people probably connect with this, especially from a parent, or even, it doesn't even have to be a parent, it could be somebody you admire. Because I really admired my dad, I really sort of admired what he had. And that would kind of become my downfall, as we'll, we'll hear about later. Um, yeah, the, the feeling I got from that was amazing. To hear him say those things about me, 
and to big me up like that was incredible and I thrived off that because I'd spent because I was such a a rebellious child I'd spent most of my time was spent being told off or being told I can't do something or that I'm I'm not good at something so to when he when he turned around and said those things it, it really stuck with me and even now today as a as a grown 32 33 year old um if he turns around and praises me for something it still feels I still get that same feeling of I've you know if, if I've got his approval I've achieved something um and my mum was 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 always very keen on praise and she'd always big me up she still does today she idolizes all three of her children she's a great mother she's a hard working mother she's been through a lot my mum um and she's still there today bigging us up bigging up the grandkids and she's always been a superb um part of my life but i think it's it's those kind of things and and seeing their um admiration for me and when when i do do something right and seeing how 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 proud they are of me when i do do when i do achieve um that's where failure hits hard uh and i've also got two very high achieving brothers throughout life and uh, my older brother was very intelligent my younger brother was very intelligent did very well in, in their exams i failed majority of my gccs because i didn't i didn't apply myself i didn't knuckle down i didn't care i hated school couldn't wait to get out of school um school for me was just something i had to do to move on to the next phase of life which was earning money and, and getting a job um there were a couple of lessons that i loved i loved english i loved pe uh, I loved history, um, but the majority of the time was spent chasing girls and playing football. That's what I did at school. Um, I wasn't interested in anything else. I hated the fact that I had to sit there and listen to a subject that I had no interest in. Uh, and I was no good at exams. I'm not built that way. I can't read. I don't read many books. It takes a lot for me to engage in a book. Um, and the books I have to read have to be factual. Um, also autobiographical or or of that nature. Uh, if some teacher sits there with a textbook and puts it in front of me, I'm going to disengage straight away because I can't I can't ingest that information. I need to be shown something. I'm a kinetic learner. I need to see it um, performed in front of me to be able to pick it up. And that's why YouTube really now is my biggest teacher. I'll go on YouTube all the time and watch a video of something being done. Um, for example, knot tying. I'm teaching myself to tie certain knots at the moment. I've seen diagrams of it and I can't follow them. Whereas if someone shows me step by step on a YouTube video or in person, then I pick it up really, really quickly. Um, and that's just the way I am. And, and I wasn't, I wasn't a, a geared towards exams. So I knew I was always going to fail those exams. Whether I applied myself or not, I knew I was going to fail those exams. Because one, I had no interest in the subject. And two, I was just no good at exams. Um, and I remember the day I got my exam results from my GCSEs. Uh, they came, I went out to the school to pick them up with my mum and I drove back home and I sat in the conservatory in our house and um, it's a nice warm day, sat in the conservatory and I had the envelope in front of me and I had a big grin across my face thinking I'd be, a f I'd be fine, I'd be fine. I kind of always landed on my feet so I, th I thought I'd be fine and my dad was, um, my dad was there as well I think. Uh, yeah. yeah, he was, yeah my dad was there as well and we were all sat around and uh, I opened them up and I pulled them out and I read what I had and I I'd, I'd passed, um, I failed maths, got two D's in maths, um, two B's in English 
uh, two C's in science. Um, and I think out of the uh, out of the, I think eleven or so, I, half of them I'd passed and half of them I'd failed effectively. And my, the words out of my mouth were, "Oh dear, that's not very good, is it?" And my mum and dad laughed. They laughed. And they were like, "No, it's not. It's not very good." Um, but it's down to you. We, you know, they said to me, "We gave you the impetus to." To, to learn, we were never going to push you. We were never going to say you must sit down and do, and they never did. They never sat me down when I came home from school. It was down to me if I did my homework or not. They weren't going to sit there and say do your homework. At the end of the day, it's your education, it's your learning. If you don't do your homework, you get in trouble. It's, you know, we don't get in trouble, you get in trouble. So they never sat me down and pushed me to do any homework or anything like that. They they were very much like it's all on you. And it was the same with revision. They were like, if you're going to revise, you revise. If not, then the consequences of your own and um yeah I, I failed most of them luckily i had a job already lined up before i left school because my older brother at the time was working at a boatyard in roxham and uh, i was just going to follow in his footsteps because i was i had no interest in going into further education no interest in going back into sort of full-time college i definitely was never going to go to university um and I didn't really know what I wanted to do, so I thought I'll just follow my brother because he's earning money. And I could see that he had a car and he had a phone and he was kind of going out and going shopping and buying what he wanted to buy and stuff. So that's what I wanted to do. I had no interest in going into education. So luckily I had that job lined up. And um, so, yeah, I, I failed my exams and uh, and I just I just thought, well, it doesn't really matter. I'm going into college and doing this apprenticeship in boat building and carpentry, so I'll go and do that. So I did. At the age of 16, I left school and started work at, at uh, a, boat bar, a boat yard in Wroxham, uh, building Oyster Marine yachts. Uh, they were these huge ocean-going yachts from sort of 45 foot upwards to 80, 100 feet eventually. They managed to, to cram in there. And I started doing that. And at the start, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the create because I'm quite creative, obviously, my photography background and all that sort of thing and I used to make videos and stuff but I was very creative so doing that was quite quite nice for me I think I did for two years I did that and I, I managed to they, they offered me a, a, a choice when it came to the apprenticeship do I do the two year or do I do the three year and I, I soon realized that I only wanted to do the two year I wanted to do the basic and I wasn't going to go and do the advanced apprenticeship uh, I had to go to college at, at Lowestoft originally that was a ball ache going all the way to Lowestoft every week then it changed to Yarmouth and that was even more of a ball ache um, so yeah, I kind of, I muddled my way through that, passed all the exams that I needed to pass, got my apprenticeship and I muddled through doing that for two years and I hated it at the end. It was so not me. Um, the work was repetitive. It was like being in a factory. Um, I had no interest in boats. It just didn't interest me whatsoever. So I changed tack to my step granddad at the time. He then got a job at the same place and he was working in the stores. Um, and the person who he was working with was leaving. I thought, well, I'll apply to go and transfer into there. I said, can I have the job in the storeroom? And they said, yeah, you can have that job. So I went in and worked in with him. And I actually enjoyed that job a lot more than I did the carpentry. Um, There's a lot of organising, uh, a lot of humping and dumping, carrying stuff and, and sorting things out. And I actually quite enjoyed that job at times. And there were times where it was really boring, but um, I did enjoy that. It was an interesting dynamic working with my granddad because um, he was very old school. Um, everything was done on pencil and paper. 
didn't like computers, and I was all for computerising the whole system and making it really easy. It never happened, because the majority of the workforce there were of the older generation, and they were very against computers as well. So we did everything on pencil and paper. So I learned how to do things the old-fashioned way, and I really enjoyed it. Um, but eventually I knew that there was going to be something, I, I was going to have to go and do something more. I couldn't do this forever. It wasn't me. Um, and I started looking at um, acting um, and being a performer. Uh, and I started doing a thing at, at Norwich Youth Theatre Group. Uh, and they've had quite a few successful actors come from there. Um, a chap called Sam Claflin, who's been in some major movies. He's been in Peaky Blinders, he's in Pirates of the Caribbean, and many other things as well. Uh, his brother Joe has been in uh, a number of things. Uh, Jack Bannon, who I did a lot of plays with. He's now Pennyworth in the Pennyworth series. Um, Tom Cox, he's been in things. And, and Nicky Jackman, who's in Holby City, uh, regular in that. I've done many things with him as well. Sam Clement has gone on to, to, to do many things. He's in The War Below. That's recently released and he was he played um, Harry Potter's son in the stage show in, in Broadway of the, the Harry Potter stage show. So of the group <clears throat> that went through the Norwich Youth Theatre Company that a lot have gone on to have success. Uh, people who I, I worked alongside and, and acted alongside. And I did that for about four years, and I loved every minute of it. I, it was great for me, performing in front of uh, quite a few people, sometimes in an intimate environment and sometimes in, in, in the sort of Norwich Theatre Royal in front of loads of people on the summer show, singing, dancing. Something I never thought I would do in front of people was singing and dancing. But I loved it. And, and I performed in, in many, many shows over the sort of five, four or five years I, was, I did that. Um, and... I thought at the time, that's, that's what I want to be. Maybe I want to be an actor. And I looked at it and I looked at potentially being an actor. And my dad sat me down and he said, why do you want to be an actor for? I said, well, I like performing. I enjoy it. Um, I get a lot out of it. I think I'm quite good at it as well. I think, you know, I was always getting quite high praise. I got quite good reviews when the shows came out. I said, I think I'm quite good at it. I think I could do this. He said, you don't want to be an actor. He said, don't be an actor. And I was like, well, but why? Why can't I get to choose what I want to do? This is what I want to do. I want to be an actor. I want to go to drama school. I want to go to theatre school. He goes, yeah, but what if you fail? And I didn't even really think about failure at the time. I was like, well, I won't fail. I won't. I'll just, I've, ne I've never really failed at anything. I kind of always set myself goals and I'd always achieve them. Every goal I'd ever set myself, I'd achieved. Um, to the point of things like, I wanted to be a radio DJ at one point. So I went and worked and did a hospital radio stint for a while. And then I wanted to be a football commentator. And I got to do football commentary commentary, commentary sorry, through my hospital radio. I went to commentate on a number of Norwich City games. So I'd done that. Um, so I always set myself goals. I always achieved those goals. And um, so I was like, no, no, I'll, I'll definitely do it. I'm not even worried about failure. Failure is not something I, that I come across. And he was like, but... There are so many people who want to be actors. There are so many people going to drama school. There are so many people doing this. How many people do you think make it successfully? And again, I just shrugged it off. But how, how, going back now and looking back what I've been through and my issues with failure, man, was he right? I could have invested a lot of time going through drama school uh, and not making it, and it, I don't know how it would have affected me. Now, that's not to say that people shouldn't go and do these things. Failure is a good thing. Um, 
you need to fail to learn from an experience to push forward to, to grow as a person if you if you go through life not failing you won't grow as a person but um you need to be able to be prepared for failure that's what i've learned um so i didn't i didn't go forward with the with the drama school thing i didn't go through with the acting thing and the military was always calling me. The military has always been there in the background since I was a kid. Like I said, my dad was in the Air Force. My uncle was in the Air Force. My granddad was in the Air Force. His dad for him was in the military. Um, my cousin was serving. And I'd see, I would see my cousin quite regularly. I'd go and visit him when he was at Coltshaw. Um, and we'd go and visit his house. And we'd go to the family days and things like that with him at Coltshaw. Um, and... My auntie was in, and I came effectively from a military family. And I was the one of the three boys that was really interested in the military. I, 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 I grew up on war movies. I loved fast jets. Um, and I wanted to be in the infantry. That's what I wanted to be. I was going to be in the infantry. But again, my dad sat me down and he said, really think about what it is you want to do in the military. This is, because if you're in the infantry, it looks great on the TV. Like, it's all very glamorous on the TV, what you do in the infantry, obviously. Uh, same Private Ryan is not glamorous at all, um, but he says you, you know you kind of get that that feeling that it's all excitement all the time, it's all adrenaline all the time. He says, but it's not. You you go and do something for a little while, and then you come back, and it's a lot of boredom, sitting around waiting. He says, and what do you if you have to leave the military like he did, so he was very prepared for leaving the military. He was an engineer. He had a degree in engineering from the military. He says, what do you do if you come out? There's not much call for infantiers on on Civvy Street. So I thought about it and I looked at it and um, my granddad, like I said, was a very successful photographer and he'd been a photographer in the Air Force. And I looked at that and I had an interest in photography and I thought, yeah, I'll do that. I'll, I'll, I'll join as a photographer in the Air Force. And I applied at 18 and withdrew my application. I applied again at 19 and withdrew my application. And then I applied again at 21. I thought, I'm ready now. I think I'm old enough and mature enough to go and do it. Um, I think I'm, I'm there. So I applied again. At 21, and I joined the Air Force at 21. 16th of August 2009 was my attestation day. I joined the Royal Air Force as a photographer. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of my life up until that point. That's my life up until joining the Air Force. And my life accelerated after that, and I'll go into that into, into the next episode. But to kind of summarise this one, um, I had a great childhood growing up. I had a really loving family who I didn't always see eye to eye with, but I think if you ask any family, um, there's always friction. That, you know, Nobody gets on 100% of the time. Nothing's perfect. Um, I was very loved. Um, I was very lucky. I always had everything I wanted. I never kind of went without. I didn't get pocket money so much. Um, I, my parents just kind of got me things. Um, and I have a lot of great memories from being a child. Um, whether it be playing out in the building sites using bricks as goalposts to holidays in Italy, um, to sitting around a computer with my mum on a rainy summer's day playing Toy Story 2. Um, my childhood was a, was a good one. and I look back on it fondly and I, I hope that my son has a very similar experience and a similar loving childhood as I did. Um, but there are elements of my childhood that begin with the triggering of failure. I longed for my parents' approval. I loved it when I got it. Uh, and I hated seeing them disappointed. Um, and I was f I avoided failure. 
when I was a kid. I didn't go to drama school because I avoided that failure. I didn't join the infantry so much because I didn't want to, you know, I wanted to follow, follow what my father said. So where I could avoid failure, I would. I would never embrace failure. Um, and I always wanted that praise. I always wanted them to be proud of me and, and to, to give me that love and affection. So although my childhood wasn't traumatic, there are some triggers in there that maybe in, in the future led on to what I had and what I would struggle with later in life. So thank you for listening to this first episode of I'm Fine. Uh, We look back at my childhood and in the next episode we will look forward to my Air Force career and what I achieved in the Royal Air Force as a photographer. Um, Like I said before, if you are struggling with mental health issues and you do want to reach out to anybody, please, please do. You can call the Samaritans on 116123 or you can text SHOUT to 85258 and that is the mind charity but there are a number of other charities out there combat stress rethink mental illness and if you're not feeling like reaching out to any of those talk to a friend a colleague a family member anybody just reach out to somebody even if you're not spilling out the entire story even if you just say look can you help me with something it honestly helps honestly it does and it might save your life so thank you to listening to this episode and I will see you in the next one. Stay safe.